Thank you for the very warm welcome. The week between June 23rd and June 30th, 2022, was one of the most momentous in all of American history when it comes to the Supreme Court. If you are politically conservative, this is a time to be jubilant. The Supreme Court handed down decisions that conservatives have wanted for a half century. And if you're politically liberal, this is a time to be petrified in terms of what the Supreme Court has done. When Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died on September 21st, 2020, and was replaced by Justice Amy Coney Barrett on October 26, 2020, I made two predictions. First, we would see a lot more 6-3 decisions. Simple arithmetic explains why. There are six conservative justices, all appointed by Republican presidents, Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Barrett. And there are three liberal justices appointed by Democratic presidents, just Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. This is unique in American history. Until recently, there were liberal justices who been appointed by Republican presidents, John Paul Stevens, David Souter. And there had been conservative justices appointed by Democratic presidents, Byron White, before that Felix Frankfurter. My other prediction is we would see many fewer 5-4 decisions where the liberals were in the majority. Before Justice Ginsburg died, there were four liberals, Ginsburg, Breyer, Sonar, and Kagan, and they could occasionally get a fifth vote and be in a surprising majority. But now with three liberal justices, it takes two on a court with such staunch conservatives. Every Supreme Court term is labeled by the October when it begins. So last term, what I'm talking about now, is officially known as October term 2021. The Supreme Court decided 60 cases with signed opinions after briefing and oral argument. 19 of them were 6-3, about a third. Another nine were 5-4. And there was virtually no case all term where the liberal justices were in the majority in a closely divided decision. It's worth taking a moment to think about how we got here. Between 1960 and 2020, there were 32 years with a Republican president and 28 years with a Democratic president. That's almost even. In fact, in 2024, it will be exactly even, 32 years with a Republican president, 32 years with a Democratic president. But between 1960 and 2020, Republican presidents picked 15 justices while Democratic presidents picked only eight justices. I'll put it to you another way. Donald Trump, in his four years in the White House, picked three Supreme Court justices. But the prior three Democratic presidents, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, served to combine 20 years in the White House, and they picked only four justices in that time. Some of it's the accident of history is when vacancies occurred. Some of it is the manipulation of the process and the way in which Mitch McConnell blocked Merrick Garland from being considered and then rushed through Amy Coney Barrett. What I'd like to do tonight is talk about what I regard as the three most important areas of Supreme Court decisions that came down between June 23rd and June 30th. Then I want to talk for a few minutes about what to expect next year and then the longer term future of the court. And I promise to save about 15 minutes for questions. And you can ask me anything you want with regard to the Supreme Court and constitutional law. 
With regard to last term of the court, there are three areas that I think are most important in terms of just our lives. And to take them alphabetically, the first, the most significant concerns abortion rights. And everyone here is familiar with the fact that on Friday, June 24th, the Supreme Court decided Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization and the Supreme Court overruled Roe versus Wade. A little bit of background and then to talk about it, what it's going to mean. In 1973, as you know, in Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court held that the liberty, the due process clause, protects a right to privacy. And the court said that laws that prohibit abortion infringe a woman's right to privacy. And the court said that states cannot prohibit abortions prior to viability, the time at which the fetus can survive outside the womb. What you may not remember is that Roe versus Wade was a seven to two decision. The majority opinion was written by Justice Harry Blackman, who was appointed by a Republican president, Richard Nixon. The majority included Chief Justice Warren Burger and Justice Lewis Powell, who was appointed by Republican presidents. The composition of the court changed over a couple of decades, and many thought that in 1992, the court was about to overrule Roe versus Wade. And instead, in June 1992, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the Supreme Court five to four reaffirmed Roe versus Wade and said states cannot prohibit abortions before viability. But you may not know, and it hasn't gotten nearly enough media coverage, all five justices in that case who reaffirmed Roe had been appointed by Republican presidents. There were Harry Blackman, appointed by Richard Nixon, John Paul Stevens, appointed by Gerald Ford, Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy, appointed by Ronald Reagan, and David Souter, appointed by President George H.W. Bush. The composition of the court changed again over the last several years, especially when you had President Trump picking three justices, and the last being Amy Coney Barrett replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Dobbs involved a Mississippi law that prohibited abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. And as the case came to the court, the issue was, can states prohibit abortion then, which is before viability? Science and medicine tells us viability is about the 23rd or 24th week of pregnancy. But the Supreme Court used this as the vehicle for overruling Roe. Justice Alito wrote for the court, joined by Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. Justice Alito said that Roe versus Wade was, quote, egregiously wrong and exceedingly poorly reasoned. He said a right should be protected by the Constitution only if it's mentioned in its text or was part of its original meaning when it was adopted or there's a long unbroken tradition. He said abortion doesn't meet any of these criteria. He said the court shouldn't have to follow precedent when it was wrongly decided. Chief Justice Roberts concurred in the judgment, which means he agreed with the result, but not the reasons. He would have upheld the Mississippi law, allowed states prohibit abortion to the 15th week of pregnancy, but not reach the question of whether to overrule Roe. Justices Breyer, Sinner, and Kagan wrote what's unusual, a joint dissent. All three of them wrote it together, and it was vehement. They defended Roe versus Wade. They said that part of a woman's liberty should be the ability to decide whether to continue or terminate a pregnancy. They said precedent should matter. They talked about the practical effects of what a ruling row will mean for women's lives in the United States.
Well, what will it mean now that the courts overruled Roe? It will mean that the issue of abortion is left to the political process. For now, that means each state will decide for itself whether to prohibit or allow abortion. It's estimated that over half the states will prohibit all or virtually all abortions. You have states like Alabama and Oklahoma that already have laws on the books that prohibit abortions from the moment of conception. You have many states that prohibit abortions with the only exception being to save the life of the woman, no exception to protect the woman's health or in cases of rape or incest. But in California, like in Illinois, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and so on, abortion will remain legal. The practical effect of this will be that women in states where abortion is illegal, who have the resources, will travel to places like California, New York to get abortions. Before New York became the first state in this country to legalize abortion in the 1960s, 25% of the abortions in England were performed on American women. It wasn't poor women who were going to England for abortions. Likewise, it's not gonna be poor women in Mississippi who'll be able to come to California, New York for abortions. It's disadvantaged women and often teenagers who will again face the cruel choice between the unwanted child and the unsafe back alley abortion. I intentionally chose the words for now, this is left to the states, because Congress could adopt a law that creates a national right to abortion or pass a law that prohibits abortions everywhere in the United States. With a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress, one would think Congress could pass a statute that says abortion is a right everywhere in the country and thereby preempt states that prohibit abortion. I think such a bill could get through the House. It's already gotten to the House once this year, but there's no way to get the votes to overcome a Republican filibuster and the Democrats don't have the votes to change the filibuster rules. What I'm afraid of is someday when there's a Republican president and a Republican Congress, they will adopt a law prohibiting abortion everywhere in the United States. And I think the Republicans might be much more willing to change the rules with regard to filibusters. I think we're gonna see states adopting many more laws to try to restrict abortion. There's bills that have been introduced in state legislatures like Missouri's that make it a crime for a woman to leave the state to get an abortion. Some states like Texas have laws that make it a crime to bring drugs into the state that would induce an abortion. Over half all abortion in the United States are medically induced, not surgical procedures. You're gonna see states adopting laws that prohibit forms of birth control that are thought to take effect after conception, like sometimes the morning after pill does. You're gonna see regulations of in vitro fertilization and how embryos can be treated. And then there's the question of, what's this gonna mean for other rights? Just as Clarence Thomas wrote a separate opinion in Dobbs, in which he said, now the Supreme Court should overrule the decision, Griswold versus Connecticut, that protect the right to purchase and use contraceptives. The decision that said consenting adults have the right to engage in private same-sex sexual activity, Lawrence versus Texas. And the case that said that gays and lesbians have the right to marry, Obergefell versus Hodges. Justice Kavanaugh wrote an opinion saying, oh, those rights aren't in jeopardy. Justice Alito in his majority opinion said those rights aren't in jeopardy. But I'm not reassured. I mean, think about what Justice Alito said. A right is protected 
only if it's in the text of the Constitution, was part of its original meaning, with those long unbroken tradition of protection. That doesn't include a right to purchase and use contraceptives. That doesn't include a right to engage in private same-sex sexual activity. That doesn't include a right to same-sex marriage. In fact, Justice Alito, along with Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas, vehemently dissented when the Supreme Court protected right to same-sex marriage in Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015. Rarely in all of American history has the Supreme Court taken a right away from people. But that's exactly what the Supreme Court did on June 24th in the Dobbs case. The second area that I want to talk about concerns the Supreme Court and religion. And two cases came down from the Supreme Court that are quite important in that week I was referring to. One is a case called Carson versus Macon. There are parts of Maine that are too rural to support public school systems. So in those areas, school administrative units give money to parents to send their children to private school. Maine law says that the money has to be used in secular schools. It can't be used in religious schools. Maine says its goal is to make sure there's a free secular education for every child in the state. Maine quotes James Madison and Thomas Jefferson that it's repugnant to tax a person to support the religion of others. 5,000 children are affected by this. Two families that wanted to send their children to religious school and use state money to pay for it, sued. They lost in the lower courts, but they won in the Supreme Court, six to three. Chief Justice Roberts wrote for the court and said, whenever the government subsidizes secular private education, it is constitutionally required to subsidize religious education as well. This is dramatic. For decades, the issue was, when may the government choose to give money to religious schools without it being an establishment of religion? And there are cases about, could the government give audiovisual equipment to religious schools? Could the government give sign language interpreters to religious schools? Now the court is saying the government is required to give money and aid to religious schools whenever it does the secular private schools or it violates free exercise of religion. Let me give you examples of why this matters so much. In California, like in most states, there are charter schools. These are schools that are paid for by the government but privately run. California law says that the charter schools must be secular. But I know to a certainty that religious entities that want to run charter schools and have government money to do so are now going to bring a challenge. And I think they're likely to win. Where there are many government programs that have existed that provide assistance for secular purposes, but not for religious purposes. I'll give an example. Lots of state and local governments have money for historic preservation of buildings. But traditionally, they wouldn't allow the money to be used for historic preservation of houses of worship, churches, synagogues, mosques. I was involved in a case in New Jersey involving this, and the New Jersey Supreme Court ruled unanimously, seven to nothing, that it was permissible for the state to give money for historic preservation, but not to churches, synagogues, mosques. I think now the result would be different. If the government's going to give money for secular purposes, it has to give it for religious purposes. 
or there's a lot of government programs for things like drug and alcohol rehabilitation, where the government has said it will support secular-based programs, but it won't support religious-based programs that use faith for drug and alcohol rehabilitation. I think those programs are now unconstitutional. It's not simply that the court is permitting the government to support this. The court is saying the government is required to support this, and it will be a major transfer of resources from secular institutions to religious ones. The other case about religion that I want to talk about came down on Monday, June 27th. It was a case called Kennedy versus Bremerton Schools. Joseph Kennedy was a high school football coach in Bremerton, Washington. He described himself as a devout Christian. And at the end of football games, he would go into the 50-yard line and in front of everybody, kneel and engage in prayer. Over time, some of the players from his team would join him. Some of the players from the other team would join him. A father complained to the school system and said that his son was an atheist and felt that if he didn't join in the prayers, he'd get less playing time. The school system asked him to stop praying on the field after games. He briefly complied, and then he went back to doing so, and in fact delivered what he described as Christian inspirational messages, and he called them prayers, and players from Teams would sometimes join him. Sometimes people from the stands would join him. The school put him on administrative leave and gave him a poor performance evaluation for insubordination. He sued and said that this violated his freedom of speech and free exercise of religion. The lower courts ruled in favor of the school. The Supreme Court has strictly prohibited prayer in schools for 60 years. But the Supreme Court six to three ruled in favor of the coach and said that disciplining him for engaging in prayer violated his free speech and his free exercise of religion. It's interesting how the majority and the dissent described the facts differently. Justice Gorsuch writing for the six conservatives and said, this was a coach who was engaging in a moment of private prayer when he was on his own time. Justice Sotomayor says, this wasn't private. This was in a crowded football stadium. And she did something unusual. She included pictures of the stadium and the crowd there to show what was really going on. And also, it wasn't on his own time. The game was over, but the football event was still going on. Any restriction of prayer in schools by teachers or students, by definition, limits their speech, by definition, limits their free exercise of religion. And yet over and again, since the early 1960s, the Supreme Court has said that public schools are meant to be secular. The presence of prayer is inherently coercive and therefore it's not allowed. But at the very least, what this case means in practical terms is that teachers before classes start, recess, lunch, when the kids have their heads down on the desk, after school are allowed to pray in the classroom and if students want to join with them, it's no problem. It's not, again, simply that the Supreme Court is saying that the prayer is allowed. What the court is saying is that if the teacher wants to pray, we're required to permit that. The Constitution, of course, speaks of free speech and free exercise of religion. But it also has another clause in the First Amendment that the government can't make any law respecting establishment of religion. It was Thomas Jefferson who said 
that there should be a wall that separates church and state. The idea is that our government should be secular. The place of religion should be in our lives, our churches, our synagogues, our mosques. As the dissenting justices said in these two cases, the Supreme Court ignores any notion of the Establishment Clause. It's obliterated the notion of a wall separating church and state. The third area that I want to talk about from the decisions from that week concern the Second Amendment. From 1791, when the Second Amendment was adopted until June 2008, not one federal, state, or local law regulating guns was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. If we want to focus on history, from 1791, when the second was adopted, to 2008, not a single gun regulation was ever declared unconstitutional. There were a handful of Supreme Court cases about the Second Amendment, and the court always said the Second Amendment means what it says. It's about a right to have guns for militia service. The Second Amendment says, quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The court said the Second Amendment tells us what its purpose is about. In June 2008, the Supreme Court, for the first time, in District of Columbia versus Heller, found a gun regulation unconstitutional. This was a D.C. ordinance, it was 32 years old at the time, that prohibited ownership or possession of handguns. The Supreme Court said that this is unconstitutional. It was five to four. Justice Antonin Scalia wrote for the conservatives. And the court said, there's a right of people to have guns in their home for the sake of security. But between 2008 and 2022, the Supreme Court didn't again have occasion to talk about what's protected by the Second Amendment. In the court on Thursday, June 23rd, decided a case called New York Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. It involves a New York law that was initially adopted in 1907 and then codified in its current form in 1911. And it says that people can't have weapons in public unless they have a permit, can't have a concealed weapon in public unless you get a concealed weapons permit. And to get a concealed weapons permit, you need to show cause for having a concealed weapon. And the New York court said cause requires that a person demonstrate a safety need in order to have a concealed weapon. New York is one of about half dozen states. There's laws like this. California had a law just lower, now unconstitutional, but just like this. In order to have a concealed weapon, you need a concealed weapons permit. One of the things you have to show is a safety need for having a concealed weapon. The Supreme Court again in a six to three decision, declared this unconstitutional. Justice Thomas wrote the opinion for the court. He said that the Second Amendment takes a right of people to have guns in public, including a right to having concealed weapons in public. This is a dramatic expansion in gun rights all by itself. Never before had the Supreme Court spoken of a right to have guns outside the home, Never the court said there's a right to have concealed weapons. But then the court went much further and discussed what type of gun regulations will be allowed in the future. How should courts go about analyzing them? 
usually when there's a fundamental right involved, the Supreme Court says the government can interfere with it only if it meets what the law is called strict scrutiny. And that means that the government has to show that its action is necessary to achieve a compelling purpose. So if the government wants to infringe somebody's free speech, say based on their viewpoint, the government can do so, but only if it can show a compelling interest and its action is necessary, no other way to achieve it. If the government wants to interfere with somebody's free exercise of religion, the government can do so if it can show its action is necessary to achieve a compelling purpose. If the government engages in race discrimination, the action is allowed, but only if the government can show it meets strict scrutiny, it's necessary to achieve a compelling purpose. And I would have thought that if the Supreme Court was going to aggressively protect gun rights in this case, it would do so by saying that any regulation of guns, at least when it comes to outside the home, inside the home, has to meet strict scrutiny, has to be necessary to achieve a compelling purpose, because that's what the court does when it wants to provide maximum protection of the right of liberty. What to me was most stunning in the decision that came down on June 23rd is that the Supreme Court went even further in protecting Second Amendment rights than any other rights. The Supreme Court said the government can regulate guns only if it's a type of regulation that historically existed. Only if it's a regulation that existed either in 1791 when the second was adopted or maybe 1868 when the 14th Amendment was adopted. There's a dispute. Justice Barrett writes an opinion saying we haven't decided whether it's 1791 or 1868. The only type of gun regulations we allowed are those that existed then. I worried you think I might be caricaturing or exaggerating what the Supreme Court said. So I brought you the exact words that I'll quote for you. The court says, quote, only if a firearm regulation is consistent with this nation's historical tradition, may a court conclude that individual's conduct falls outside the Second Amendment's command. The court says, quote, the Second Amendment is the very product of interest balancing by the people. And it surely elevates above all other interests the right of law-abiding citizens to use arms for self-defense. Never has the Supreme Court said that the First Amendment elevates above all other interests freedom of speech. Never has the court said that the 14th Amendment elevates above all other interests protection from race discrimination. But the Supreme Court has said the Second Amendment elevates above all other interests the right to have a gun. And the Supreme Court has said the only regulations that be allowed are those that were historically permitted. A week ago Friday, Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law a bill that involves civil liability for certain actions by those who sell or distribute guns. One part of that says that anybody who sells or gives a gun, handgun to a minor under 21 or a long gun to a minor under 18 is liable. But here's the question. In 1791 or 1868, were those kind of restrictions on guns? Now you might think, well, why don't we just limit the Second Amendment to the type of guns that existed in 1791? Muskets. Justice Thomas addressed that specifically. He says, just as the First Amendment applies to media that didn't exist in 1791, so does the Second Amendment right to have guns that didn't exist in 1791. So what the court is saying is that the Second Amendment protects weapons 
that no one could have dreamed of in 1791, AR-15s, but it limits the government, its ability to regulate to the type of regulations that existed in 1791. It really does provide more protection for gun rights than for any others in the Constitution. And it puts in jeopardy federal, state, local laws that regulate so many aspects with regard to guns. And from a lawyer's perspective, litigation now is all about but what kind of regulations existed in 1791 or 1868. So those are the major cases that I want to talk about from this term. What about next term? The Supreme Court will come back on the first Monday in October. The term will be October term 2022. And again, the Supreme Court has so many blockbuster cases on the docket. They're going to make an enormous difference in people's lives in our political system. Let me give you a few examples. There'll be two cases argued on the topic of affirmative action. In a series of cases starting in 1978, the Supreme Court has said that colleges and universities have a compelling interest in every diverse student body. College universities can use race as one factor in their admissions decisions to benefit minorities. The Supreme Court said this in 1978 in Regents University of California versus Bakke. They affirmed it in 2003 in Grutter versus Bollinger. They repeated it in 2016 in Fisher versus University of Texas, Austin. But the composition of the Supreme Court has changed greatly since 2016. There were three dissenters in 2016, Roberts, Thomas, Alito, who was still on the court, and now they're joined by Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. Um, the two cases are Students for Fair Admission versus University of North Carolina and Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard College. So the Supreme Court's going to consider this for the public and private universities. I don't think anyone, liberal or conservative, has any doubt that the Supreme Court's going to overrule the earlier precedent and say that college universities cannot engage in affirmative action. Interestingly, this won't have an effect on public universities and college in California. It will have an effect on private ones. And the reason is that California voters in 1996 passed Proposition 209 that said that already the state of California in education contract employment can't give preference on the basis of race or sex. But what happened in California is instructive of what's gonna go on around the rest of the country. UCLA could, if you compare what its diversity was in 1996, it took over 20 years before it got back to the pre-1996 levels of diversity. And that was with constant efforts to try to find ways around Proposition 209. I worry of the schools around the country that won't even try after the Supreme Court decision or how long it will take them. I think it's going to have a devastating effect on diversity in higher education. And Prop 209 in California applies only to the state of California, to public schools. Private schools have been able to engage in affirmative action, but not after the Supreme Court's decision in the Harvard case. So it's going to have a real effect on who gets into what schools and who doesn't. There's another case that I would tell you about that's before the Supreme Court that's going to be argued this fall. Reviews already been granted. It's a case called 303 Creative versus Alenis. 
a woman owns a business in Colorado where she designs websites and she wants to design websites for weddings, but she says she doesn't want to design websites for same-sex weddings because that violates her religious beliefs. Colorado law, like California law, prohibits business establishments from discriminating, among other grounds, based on sexual orientation. She's saying that to require her to design websites for same-sex weddings violates free exercise of religion, and to apply the anti-discrimination law against her is unconstitutional. Again, I think it's likely that the Supreme Court's going to rule in her favor and say that her religious beliefs trump the interest in stopping discrimination. I worry about how this is going to be extended. There are a lot of cases now pending in the lower courts that involve businesses that are claiming a right to discriminate against gay, lesbian, and transgender individuals based on the business owner's religious beliefs. And I think that you're likely to see a majority of the courts saying that people are allowed to discriminate on a kind of religious beliefs. There's always a tension between liberty and equality. Any law that prohibits discrimination limits the freedom to discriminate. Our society has made the choice for well over a half century that stopping discrimination is more important than protecting freedom to discriminate. But I think this court's gonna say that people have the freedom to discriminate based on the religious beliefs. And it's not gonna be limited then to just against gays and lesbians. What about an Orthodox Jew or devout Muslim who says he doesn't believe men and women should be in the same workplace together and therefore won't hire women based on his religious beliefs? Or somebody who says their religious beliefs are that the races shouldn't intermingle and they should have the right to violate anti-discrimination laws. The court, I think, is going to open the door to discrimination in a way that we haven't seen for well over a half century. The final case that I would talk about that's on the docket for next term is a case called Moore versus Harper, and it involves what's called the independent state legislature theory. And if your eyes are starting to glaze over when I talk about the independent state legislature theory, let me tell you that this could very well determine who's the next president of the United States. Now, this particular case comes out of North Carolina. North Carolina is basically a purple state. It went for Obama in 2008. It went for Romney and McCain and Trump in subsequent lectures. Um, it went from Romney and Trump and Trump in the next three elections. Um, the Republicans controlled the North Carolina legislature, and they decided what they were going to do was draw election districts to give Republicans control of at least 10 of 13 seats in the House of Representatives of North Carolina. They ran 3,000 computer programs, and they picked the one that was most likely to give Republicans control of 10 of 13 seats. It worked. In 2016, Republicans and Democrats got almost exactly the same number of votes in North Carolina when it's the House of Representatives. Republicans won of 10 of 13 seats. In 2018, the same thing happened. Statewide, Republicans and Democrats got the same number of votes for seats for the House of Representatives. Republicans won 10 of 13 seats. In 2019, in a case called Rucho versus Common Cause, the Supreme Court 5 to 4 said there can't be challenges to such gerrymandering in federal court. But the court said they could be challenged in state court. The Republicans in North Carolina, after the 2020 census, engaged in the same behavior. 
they drew the election districts to give Republicans control of 10 of 13 seats. The North Carolina Supreme Court said, this violates the North Carolina Constitution, and we're allowed to interpret the North Carolina Constitution. Well, challenge to this have gone to the Supreme Court and said, there's a provision in the Constitution that says that the legislature of the state gets to decide how elections for the House of Representatives be conducted. The legislature said 10 of 13 seats should be controlled by Republicans, so the courts are disempowered from doing this. To me, this is absurd. Any power in the Constitution that's granted to a legislature is always limited by the Constitution. The Constitution gives Congress powers, but the courts can declare what Congress does unconstitutional. The state of North Carolina gives certain powers to the legislature, but courts can declare that unconstitutional. Why should it be that the legislature gets to do things not reviewable by any court? Well, there's another provision in the Constitution that says that the legislatures of the state get determined who are the electors from the state in the Electoral College. And the fear is that what if there's a Republican state legislature, but the state votes for the Democrat? We saw this in places like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. The independent state legislature theory, if fought by the Supreme Court, would mean that the legislature could give the electors to whoever they want, and it doesn't matter who won the popular vote. And that's a real risk in 2024, especially if the Supreme Court in Moore versus Harper adopts this independent state legislature theory. It was a fringe theory. They got no attention for years. Now, maybe one adopted by the court. Well, let me conclude before taking questions by talking about the longer term future of the Supreme Court. As we're together today, Clarence Thomas is the oldest of the justices at age 74. Samuel Leto is 72. John Roberts is 67. And the three newest conservative justices. Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett are all in their 50s. I've long thought that the best predictor of a long lifespan is being confirmed for a seat on the Supreme Court. Justice Stevens didn't retire till he was 90 years old. So it's easy to imagine five or six of these conservatives being together for another decade or two. I also worry that they will time their retirement from this Republican president, Republican Senate, so as to continue a conservative holding that seat far into the future. But what do we do about all of this? Well, I think we need ever more to try to look to state courts and state constitutions. We need to find ways of using the political process, federal, state, and local to protect rights in ways that we haven't had to do before. I think we need to try to consider the possibility of changing the composition of the Supreme Court. I would favor term limits for Supreme Court justices. I would favor expanding the size of the Supreme Court. I think the only way to keep there from being a very conservative majority for a long time to come would be expanding the size of the Supreme Court. The size of the Supreme Court is set by statute. It's not set by the Constitution. Congress could change the size of the Supreme Court. Unfortunately, I think even if a bill to increase the number of justices were to pass the House, the Senate Republicans would filibuster it and it couldn't get through. So as I said at the very beginning, if you're politically conservative, you should be jubilant. And if you're politically liberal, this is a time to be really scared. 
So I think I've used exactly my time and glad to take questions. Yeah. I think we should all take a deep breath after that. <sighs> okay. I have lots of questions, but so I know that means you all have tons of questions. Um, I will walk up to you. Please keep your questions to 60 seconds. We want to try and make sure everyone has a chance. And then if you have a follow-up question, we'll try and get you in there. Who's gonna go first? Seriously? Okay. Thank you. All right. Awesome. Hi, and thank you. Um, I had a question in terms of a possible, what would your prediction would be for the possible future tension of abortion and a religion case? And we've been reading about the group of Orthodox Jews sure. who are thinking about bringing forth or who have already brought forth such a case. Sure. A lawsuit's been brought in Florida. It's actually by Reformed Jews. It's in Lador Vador. And they've argued that in the Jewish religion, abortion, the woman's life is primary and uh, the fetus isn't a considered human life until it takes a breath. And so um, if a law prohibits abortion without an exception to protect the woman's health, it would then violate free exercise of religion. I think the key is going to be to find a woman or women who, for whom the abortion puts their health at risk and for them to argue to require them to carry their pregnancy to term is an infringement of the religion. I don't think the case is going to work without a specific individual or individuals. It's, I think, not going to be deemed to be in the right under those circumstances. But I think that if there is such an individual and they present it as free exercise of religion, this is a court that's very receptive to free exercise clause claims. Um, I think you also see from this how much the Dobbs decision is based on the religious beliefs of the justices in the majority. Um, I don't think it's coincidence that Republican presidents for years have been picking Catholics for the Supreme Court. And that's not to say religion should ever be used as a reason to pick somebody or oppose somebody. But when you see Justice Alito quoting the language of Mississippi, that it's the unborn child, the potential life, you see how much it's based on a particular religious belief. But there are other religions like Judaism and Islamic faith that have a very different perspective. So I think with the right plaintiff, I think it'd be a very strong challenge, but it's not a huge loophole. It's only going to be a loophole for women for whom their religion would require that they have an abortion to protect their health and the state prohibits it. Hi, Dean Jennifer. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I was just wondering, um, you talked about um, the recent law that was passed here in California that Governor Newsom signed uh, that imposes civil liability for gun manufacturers and distributors and how that was modeled after SBA in Texas. Do you foresee similar laws with such innovatively pernicious enforcement measures proliferating throughout the country and if they'll ever come before state or federal courts? Yes. Um as you know, Texas adopted a law, SBA, that prohibits abortions after the sixth week of pregnancy. And at the time this was adopted, Roe and Casey were still the law, so it was clearly unconstitutional. And it was unusual about it, instead of it being enforced by a government official, like the attorney general or the district attorney, is enforced by a civil suit against the doctor or anyone who aids or abets abortion 
for $10,000. And the Supreme Court, and it was five to four, it's a case called Holman's Health versus Jackson, said you can only sue government officials if they play a role in enforcing the law. If they play no role in enforcing the law, then you can't sue them for an injunction. Now, the law can still be challenged by somebody who's sued arguing the defense, it's unconstitutional. Maybe it can be challenged in state court. So let me give an example that Justice Kavanaugh, all people mentioned the whole argument. He said, could a state adopt a law that says anyone who performs a same-sex wedding is liable for $100,000 or a million dollars? And the Solicitor General of Texas, Judd Stone, said yes. Now, if somebody was courageous enough to perform a same-sex wedding and they were sued for $100,000 and a million dollars, they could argue as a defense it's unconstitutional, but no one could go to court to get an injunction. And I think that states are going to adopt laws like this. I mean, what if a state adopts a law that says anyone who criticizes the governor is liable for a million dollars? Clearly, it's unconstitutional. But unless somebody is courageous enough to violate the law and get sued and argues a defense, it's unconstitutional. There's no way to challenge it. And Gavin Newsom modeled this bill that was adopted a week of Friday exactly on the Texas law and says, OK, well, we're going to create liability for those who sell or distribute guns in certain kinds of ways. Um, it limits how the law can be challenged, but it doesn't resolve the question of if it's challenged by somebody as a defense, is the law constitutional or unconstitutional? Are there any questions on this side? I want to make sure we balance. OK. Thank you so much for speaking tonight. I have a, a follow-up question to the first question, which has to do with Dobbs and um, with Kennedy. I I keep thinking about those two cases in conjunction, and I'm. I guess this is a two-part question. First, if the football coach had been Jewish or Muslim, do you think the outcome would have been the same? And following up on that, because I suspect it wouldn't have been. At what point is the court going to say the quiet part out loud and say traditionally? it's only Christian law that's been observed here, or are they just going to do a lot of linguistic gymnastics to distinguish? How's that going to look as we see more and more cases? In terms of the first, the law officially is the government can't discriminate among religions. And so in theory, if this was a Jewish or a Muslim coach, it would be the same. I wonder though, I wonder if it was a Muslim coach that I need to pray six times a day on my prayer rug, whether the court would have been as sympathetic as it was to a Christian coach under these circumstances. And so worry a great deal about how much is the court favoring those who are of the same religion as those on the court. Um, in terms of the latter part of your question, I think the Supreme Court is opening a very dangerous door I mean, I think Thomas Jefferson was right about why there should be a wall that separates church and state. I mean, some of it, as I said, is his belief that it's wrong to tax people to support the religion of others. Some of it is that there's inherent coercion when the government becomes aligned with religion. And the children really did feel pressure to pray, even though it wasn't their religion. And if the teacher who's giving their grades is praying every day at lunch, will the students who pray along feel like they're insiders and get better grades? And those who don't are outsiders and they won't. And yet I think that's very much the direction the Supreme Court's going. Does that address your question? 
Um, I want to pursue this a little bit. Um, you haven't mentioned an earlier case, which is town of Greece versus Galloway, sure. where city councils were allowed to have invocations with no restriction on the language. So the individual clergy person could say anything as discriminatory or whatever uh, with no restriction. And, sure. and that to me is a non-school, non, you know, it's a public venue thing, which hasn't been noticed, but is part of it. But what I want to ask, sure. having cited that even broader application, are we at a point, and this may be going beyond your legal leadership to your civic leadership, are we at a point where in order for the path of democracy to find its next step, that the question of the religious purview as having some sort of a uh, special status needs to be examined because people can't discriminate for a variety of reasons except if it fits their religion but it's an old idea that religion belief it trumps philosophy belief idea you know whatever it might be personal prejudices is there a point where this country has to decide whether this, for a variety of reasons mentioned here, this idea that religion is a uh, special status is not a special status? Sure. Two parts to your question. First, Town of Greece versus Galloway is a case from about eight years ago. It involves a city outside of Rochester, New York, and it had a practice over about 20 years of inviting Christian clergy to deliver prayers before town board meetings. And they were often, I mean, over 90% of the time, quite explicitly Christian prayers. And the Supreme Court five to four said that didn't violate the constitution. In terms of the latter, I've always thought that the establishment clause is meant to mean our government is secular and we shouldn't prefer religion over non-religion or non-religion over religion. In fact, the test that used to be used for the establishment clause says that the government can't act with the effect of advancing or inhibiting religion. The Supreme Court in Kennedy versus Bremerton schools on June 27th overruled that test. So now the court says, and this goes to your question, that the only test that exists for determining what violates the religion clauses is one based on history. And the court says, it's the history that existed in 1791. I mean, we're such a different country in terms of religion and religious pluralism today. Does it make sense to look to 1791? Or let me put it this way. Think about the Kennedy case. The issue is, does a high school football coach at a public school have the right to go onto the field and pray after games? How are we going to answer that question based on what went on in 1791? There were no public schools and football didn't exist. And yet that's the inquiry. Um, and I think the problem is what the Supreme Court is doing. Town of Greece versus Galloway is an example, but so are the cases from late June, Carson versus Macon and Kennedy versus Bremerton School is exalting free exercise religion in reading the Establishment Clause out of the Constitution. And it's very frightening to me to see what happens with that. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, in her last uh, case about religion, said, those who want to change what we've done with regard to separation of church and state need to answer the question, why would we want to give up what's worked well for this country and instead do something that's worked so poorly for others? 
throughout the world and throughout history? And I think that's a profound question. And it's a very frightening one to think about. All right, we have time for two more questions. So Jim here. Um, the 1791 just throws me off because obvious, for obvious reasons, my ancestors would have a hot, some disagreements. Um, so taking another breath. Thank you. Um, uh, one of the cases you didn't mention sure. is uh, West Virginia versus sure. EPA. And I wanna raise that because guns and abortion and religion are all very important. But I have a feeling that when the Federalist Society selected these particular justices, it was not so much concerned with religion and, and abortion as it was with money. And I think that what's going on with West Virginia versus EPA represents a possible attempt to crack the New Deal. And I wonder if you agree sure. with that. And I wonder if you could comment on, sure. the, on the major questions doctrine as well. Sure. West Virginia versus EPA involves the authority of the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. The Obama administration adopted the Clean Power Plan that was meant to substantially reduce the amount of electricity in the country that came from coal-fired plants because they produce substantial amounts of greenhouse gas emissions. The Trump administration repeals the Clean Power Plan, adopts its own affordable clean energy plan that's far more permissive with regard to greenhouse gas emissions. The United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit said that the Trump administration didn't follow proper procedures in doing this. In West Virginia and some coal companies seek Supreme Court review. And the Supreme Court rules six to three that the EPA lacks the authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. Chief Justice Roberts writes for the court and says, if it's a, this is the phrase you used, quote, a major question of economic or social significance, Congress has to give clear direction to the administrative agency. Congress here didn't say the agency has the power to do this, and therefore the EPA lacks the authority. Why does this matter so much? Well, it certainly matters with regard to climate change. Justice Kagan in her dissent began by talking about the peril to the planet from climate change, something the majority never mentions. And to limit the ability of the EPA to deal with climate change is in itself enormously important. But in terms of the major questions doctrine, the Supreme Court never defines what's a major question. The court never says what's sufficiently specific to give enough congressional direction. So the result is that this opens the door to business to challenge a huge array of environmental laws, health and safety regulations, business regulations, and it all is going to bend. And what does the court think is a major question and what's specific enough? So it is a huge decision in undermining the power of administrative agencies to protect our, our environment, our health and safety, to stop unscrupulous business practices. And, and it is, I mean, I would have talked about it, but for limited time and all you could cover so many cases, but it's a hugely important one. It really sounds like the plot of the Pelican Brief. It's, but instead of shooting and killing the justices, they just went through the Federalist Society, which makes it more dystopian. Okay, our last question. First of all, thank you again for excellent programming, as always. Okay, my friend and I here, you were our law professor 30 years ago, so whatever elixir you're taking, amen to that. 
This is the hardest question of all. Between the two of us, we have five teenagers, three of which are girls. This is so flipping depressing right now that my twin daughters who are 16 have less rights than I did at their age. So what is your advice to tell our children what they what should they do to go forth and make things better in a world that seems completely daunting right now? I think there are many things that need to be done. First is the first thing that I did the day Dobbs came down was give money to a fund here in California to pay for women in other states who can't afford abortion to be able to do so. Second thing I did was give money to Planned Parenthood because it will work hard to make sure that medic medications that can induce abortions are shipped to women throughout the country so that it can be medically induced abortions. Third, need to fight at the state level to protect abortion rights. Here in California, abortion rights are secure, but tomorrow they're gonna to vote in Kansas on whether to amend the constitution to allow the Kansas legislature to prohibit all abortions. And we're gonna to need to fight state by state in that regard. Fourth, we need to pressure Congress. We need to pressure Congress to protect a national right to safeguard abortion rights. You know, lest that seem fanciful, I think if the Democrats pick up just two seats in the House, two seats in the Senate, so there's 52 Democratic senators, so we don't rely just on Manchin and Cinema, there might be enough votes to change the rules of the filibuster, assuming the Democrats keep the House as well, which is a big assumption, to pass a national law protecting abortion rights in 2023. Well, we need to be involved to be able to make those things happen. So you're absolutely right. Your daughters have less rights than you do. I have a 24-year-old daughter, she has less rights than her mother did. Um, you know, every woman of reproductive age has lived in a country where abortion is legal. And now abortion is illegal in over half the states. But I think it just means we have to fight back. Right. Another deep breath and a round of applause for Dean Erwin Sherman Steve. <laughs>